We come to the final study on the book of Haggai today. I hope you've been enjoying the series so far, and if you've missed any of them, you can catch up on YouTube, Facebook, or via our website. I've found these studies to be very encouraging and as relevant to us today as they were to the people they were delivered to some two and a half thousand years ago. It's been a reminder to me that our Bibles are the living Word of God and my prayer is that it's the same for you today, that, that you'll be blessed as I have been by discovering more about Haggai's message. Well, just to recap... In 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar and his mighty Babylonian army defeated the nation of Judah. They destroyed Solomon's temple in Jerusalem and they carted the majority of the nation off to slavery in Babylon, leaving just a remnant behind of some of the poorest people in the land to tend the vineyards and the fields. Some 50 years later, along comes King Cyrus, and he's king of the Persians. He overthrows the not-so-mighty Babylonians, adding Babylonian to his ever-growing empire. The people of Judah are still in captivity, still subject to a foreign power. But Cyrus, king of the Persians, is different. He allows the people of Judah to return to Jerusalem, to rebuild their temple and their city. Some 50,000 people take up the challenge and return to the ruins of Jerusalem to rebuild their temple. It was hard work, and to add to that, they had to put up with opposition from their enemies who didn't want to see the temple rebuilt. So they soon got pretty discouraged. They gave up the rebuilding of the temple and concentrated on building their own homes instead. They'd forgotten their God, choosing instead to focus on their own interests. But God hadn't forgotten his people. He sends along his prophet Haggai to encourage them and to help them put God back at the centre of their lives and to finish building the temple. The book of Haggai details four of the messages that God gave to the people. Now, unusually, Haggai explicitly dated his prophecies right down to the day. He gave four separate messages, all in 520 BC. And in our modern calendar, they equate to August the 29th, October the 17th, and the final two, which we're going to look at today, were on December the 18th. These two messages come three months after they'd started work on the rebuilding of the temple. The foundations were laid, and now they were about to start rebuilding the temple itself. So let's look at that first message that Haggai gives on December the 18th. I'm using the Living Bible translation today simply because I just find it easier to follow. God instructs Haggai to question the priests about their purity laws. The answer they give is correct. Holiness is not contagious, but impurity is. So if Haggai were 
prophesying to us today, he'd, he'd probably sound a bit like a government scientist. He'd say, if person A, who doesn't have the virus, spends the night in the pub standing very close to person B, who does have the virus, will person A cure person B? No. Will person B with the virus infect person A? Yes. The infected one passes it on rather than the healthy one destroying the virus. Pretty obvious to us, isn't it? Holiness is not contagious, but impurity is. Holiness isn't an easy concept to understand. I think words fail us when we try to describe the holiness of God. God's so far above anything we can imagine. He's awesome in power, he's glorious in appearance, and he's utterly pure in character. We should never underestimate the holiness of God and never take for granted the sacrifice of Jesus, which made it possible for us to come into right relationship with such a holy God. As followers of Jesus, we try to be holy by the way we behave, the way we worship and serve and and relate to each other. And thereby, hopefully, we will display something of the beauty, the power and the purity of God himself. That commitment to holy living was missing amongst the people of Judah. Before God sent Haggai along, they thought they were doing okay. Because while they were still in exile in Babylon, their focus and their priority had been getting back home, getting back to the promised land. In and of of itself, that wasn't a bad focus, yet it led to the thinking that once they made it back to the promised land, everything else would be okay. Because their focus was on getting back home, they'd lost sight of God and his laws, and they were living disobedient lives. Through Haggai, God reminds them that their presence in the promised land doesn't make everything they do holy. All through the history of the nation of Israel, God had warned the people through his prophets that he hated superficial worship in the temple. The the belief that as long as they had the temple, they could turn up and go through the motions of worship without reforming their lives. Holy temples don't create holy people. And Haggai explains why. You people, he said, speaking for the Lord, were contaminating your sacrifices by living with selfish attitudes and evil hearts. And not only your sacrifices, but everything else you did as a service to me. If that message wasn't clear enough, he states bluntly, and so everything you did went wrong. The people would know that. Ever since the return to their homeland, the harvests had been blighted. Haggai's making it clear that it was because of their sinfulness and selfishness. They must have been feeling really depressed by now. They didn't need reminding about the bad harvests and the struggle they'd had since returning from exile. 
And to be told it was all their fault wasn't helping. It was kind of, don't rub it in, Haggai. And I just think Haggai's thinking, don't shoot the messenger. But then God's prophet delivers the thrust of his message. He says, but all is different now because you've begun to build the temple. All is different now. Wow. That was a change of tack. That must have made them sit up a bit. Can you imagine a news flash from the Prime Minister? He says, you've been spreading the virus and contaminating each other because you weren't obeying the rules and were being very selfish in the way you were living. And so the R rate went up and up. But all is different now because you've been obeying the rules. We wait in hope. Haggai continues God's message. But now note this. From today, this 24th day of the month, as the foundation of the Lord's temple is finished, and from this day onward, I will bless you. Notice I'm giving you this promise now before you have even begun to rebuild the temple structure and before you have harvested your grain and before the grapes, the figs and pomegranates and olives have produced their next crops. From this day, I will bless you. God tells them of his stunning reversal. Remember, this is, this is the day that the foundations of the temple have been finished. It's a critical point in the rebuilding process. And God marks this moment by promising that he, the Lord of nature and the Lord of their lives, he will bless them. From this day, he will accept them, forgive them, dwell in their temple and shower his favour on them. What a moment that must have been for the people. God had promised through Haggai all along to be with them and now he promises to bless them. But they'll have to trust him and wait to see that blessing come. Back in October when the autumn rains began in Judah, they would have sowed their seeds. And by now in early December when Haggai gives this message, the people don't know what their early spring harvest will look like. The people must now trust God's promise and wait for a bumper crop in the spring. What joy and relief that message must have brought. And I think it's a, it's a great message for us too because we can see that even when people are living a wrong lifestyle, it doesn't stop God breaking through. He still loves us, no matter where we've been or what we've done. No one is beyond his reach. So God said, from this day, I will bless you. And to the people of that day and at, at that time, I will bless you meant bumper crops, a good harvest, and no worries about their food supplies. But what does it mean to us? God loves to bless us. It's his nature. We've seen in this story, in this text, that serving God doesn't automatically bring God's blessings on this earth into our lives. We must do what we do out of love for God, not for reward. 
If we expect God to bless us because of what we do for him, then it becomes all about us, not about the grace of God, which we don't deserve. I've been reading a book called Grateful by Diana Butler Bass, where she talks about the attitude of being thankful. And here are some of her thoughts on God's blessings. I've found them helpful. She says, saying thank you first thing in the morning sets the intention for the day, reminding us to notice blessings and gifts as we move through the day. And last thing at night, count blessings, not sheep. Sometimes we might speak of nice things as blessings, a kind of pious way of talking about material comfort or personal privilege. But sometimes these blessings are invisible benefits from just living in this country. We receive these advantages without much thought, but they are blessings. Blessings emerging from contributions others have made to our lives, our schooling, our health systems, our political system. Blessings are not pious rewards for good behaviour. Blessings are the boost bestowed upon us by systems, structures, families and other benefactors who assist us on our way. The way we think about God affects the way we see the world. Like the people of Judah in our story today, our hearts need to be in the right place to see and receive God's blessings. They're all around us, if only we'll look and see them. Difficult times are not always a result of personal disobedience. And difficult difficult times don't necessarily bring us closer to God. The question, why do bad things happen to good people, has been addressed in many a book and probably without any satisfactory answer. Sometimes the systems around us that bless us can also create problems for us, even when we're walking closely to God in obedience. But we can take comfort in the truth that God's character never changes. His promises never fail. He said, from now on, I will bless you. And that was a promise from God. But those blessings weren't immediate. The harvest was a few months away yet. The people must wait, trust and live with a spirit of anticipation, watching what God will do. And it's in this context of future blessings that Haggai's second message and his last message on that day comes to Zerubbabel. He says to Zerubbabel, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth, to overthrow thrones, destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. I will overthrow their armed might, and brothers and companions will kill each other. But when that happens, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, and honour you like a signet ring upon my finger, for I have specially chosen you. So when Zerubbabel, who was the governor of Judah, when he received this promise from God, I wonder what his reaction was. 
from the words that Haggai gave him on that day, I think he could be forgiven for thinking that God was about to fulfill the promise that he'd made to King David to free Judah and Israel from foreign overlords, reunite the nation of Israel into one free independent nation. And he was going to place him, Zerubbabel, upon the throne. And this is, is where we can get ourselves into a bit of a pickle when we hear words of prophecy or when we read them in our Bibles. I've experienced, I've had the privilege of experiencing words of prophecy, prophecy from people who have a recognised gift. Um, some of the words have been in meetings and they were for that moment, they were dealt with in the meeting. Some were in a meeting but words to take home and I knew I had to do something about it in the near future. But some were for things that would bring future blessings. And I think those were the hardest words to receive because I had to wait, I had to hold on to the promise. And over the years, God has been true to those promises. And we can see that in the pattern uh, we can see that pattern in the prophetic books of the Old Testament. Some words from God were for that moment in time. Some were for the near future and some were for the distant future and still have to be realised. And that's where we need great wisdom and God's Holy Spirit to show us the difference. So back to Zerubbabel. Well, why would he have thought that these words from Haggai would mean the throne of a united Israel would be restored and he'd be the one to be sitting on it? Some 500 or so years previously, God promised King David that there would never be lacking an heir to sit on his throne. In 2 Samuel 7, he says, I will make your name greater yet so that you will be one of the most famous men in the world. Your family shall rule my kingdom forever. But a few generations down the family line, the prophet Jeremiah spoke harsh words to a succession of bad kings. You can read about it in Jeremiah 22. And at the time of the exile to Babylon, Jeremiah said to King Jehoiakim, As for you, Jehoiakim, even if you were the signet ring on my right hand, I would pull you off and give you to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Jehoiakim saw the temple destroyed, he saw Jerusalem destroyed, and he himself was deposed in Babylon. So had God's promise to David failed? No. This is where our friend Zerubbabel comes in. Zerubbabel was born in captivity in Babylon. Even his name was Babylonian. It means seed of Babylon. He was the son of Shealtiel. And guess what? Shealtiel was a son of King Jehoiakim. So God is promising to restore the Davidic line through Jehoiakim's grandson, Zerubbabel. The word Haggai brings to him confirms that he will be like that signet ring, which is the symbol of kingship and royal authority. 
the signet ring that God had taken from his grandfather. Zerubbabel is God's chosen and God's servant. Haggai doesn't say he'll ever be king or that he'll lead forces to to topple King Darius as David would have done, but he will be God's true representative. The Persian Empire, which was the greatest the world had ever known, it didn't fall in the lifetime of Haggai or Zerubbabel. It fell two centuries later. The fulfilment of this word from God was one that the people had to wait for. It was a call to wait faithfully and expectantly for the day of the Lord, the day of judgment and redemption that would usher in God's kingdom of righteousness. I, I love it when we find these links in scripture. If you go to our New Testament and look at the ancestry of Jesus laid out in the Gospels of Luke and Matthew, Zerubbabel was the last person mentioned to be in both the line of Mary, which was the blood lineage of Jesus, and Joseph, the legal lineage of Jesus. God keeps his promises. When Jesus came and walked among us, he came from the lineage of David and as a descendant of Zerubbabel. Jesus introduced God's kingdom, which has no end, which will overthrow every authority and power and which cannot be shaken or ever pass away. Jesus is ultimate king of all nations. The Messiah has come. He is establishing his kingdom and it will never end. If you're like me, in the uncertainty of today's world, we're looking for assurance. And for me, it comes in the promises of God. It's when we align ourselves with him. God's purposes are being worked out. His promises are coming true. Some will be in our lifetime and some won't. So let's hold on to those promises and like the people of Haggai's day, be encouraged. I just want to finish with the words from the book of Revelation, chapter 21. This is the last book of prophecy we have and it was given to the Apostle John. John says, Then I saw a new earth with no oceans and a new sky, for the present earth and sky had disappeared. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God of heaven. It was a glorious sight, beautiful as a bride at her wedding. I heard a shout from the throne saying, Look, the home of God is now among men, and he will live with them and they will be his people. Yes, God himself will be among them. He will wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying, nor pain. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.